I'm going to talk to you tonight about beauty. Now, beauty is a word that we all use comfortably and regularly whenever we see something or are moved by something beautiful in the world around us. So whether we're talking about beautiful landscapes, whether we're talking about the beauty of nature, or whether we're talking about our cultural heritage, it's a word that I'm sure you can all remember being inspired by, moved by, it makes our lives better. But you know, beauty is not a word that you will find today in any official document, or frankly here, any politician using. It's almost as if they're embarrassed to talk about beauty, as if it sort of is over-emotional, or somehow doesn't have enough substance, or perhaps even class-laden. In fact, the only politician I know who ever gave a speech about beauty was Oliver Letwin. Remember Oliver Letwin? Used to be a very important person in the government. He made a speech in 2005, a wonderful speech. And when I asked him recently why he'd never made another one, he said he got teased about making a speech about beauty. And it struck me that today, when we think about beautiful things and places that we want to protect, we sort of invented a whole new language, a kind of techno-language, a management-speaky language, things like ecosystem services or natural capital or biodiversity, when what we mean is beauty. And when you ask politicians what they care about, they'll pretty much tell you, it's the economy, stupid. All we care about is growth. But you know, it wasn't always like that. Beauty as an idea, as a reality, has infused this country's history and the decisions that people have made for countless centuries. Think of the medieval churches. This is a Saxon church in Gloucestershire, near where I live, at home, where rather than building functional buildings, the craftsmen and the masons built into the church, the beautiful carvings of animals and birds and flowers, as if beauty was absolutely necessary to sustain worship for the glory of God. Think of Chaucer, who wrote that it was the beauty of an April spring that long in folk to go on pilgrimages. Think, in fact, of all the writers, poets, artists, musicians who have written about beauty and who have unashamedly extolled its virtue. Think perhaps particularly of the romantic poets who brought the beauty of our environment very much to life. And perhaps the most important of those, but certainly for my purposes, here's Wordsworth, that great poet, who talked so much about the beauty that inspired him. But his wasn't just an aesthetic consciousness. No, he wrote about beauty as affecting something deeply spiritual in us all. He wrote, to recognize in nature and the language of the sense the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul. And he was writing about a, a lake district that he loved. This is uh, Thelmere, painted in the 1820s by John Piper. This extraordinary landscape which uh, inspired so many people. But it was also Wordsworth who tipped from admiring beauty into its defense. Because even as he was writing his guide to the Lake District in 1810, 
He was struck by the threats to the beauty of the Lake District, the suburban villas that were invading the valleys, the spiky larch, which he hated, which was replacing the natural deciduous vegetation, and the ore extraction that was ramping itself up to industrial levels. And of course, most famously, the railway, the railway that was to come in from Kendall to Windermere, which led him to write those perhaps most famous words of all, is then no nook of English ground secure from rash assault. And it was his defense of the Lake District, to which he gathered so many others, that really led to the birth of the conservation movement in this country in the Lake District. But if one looks back, the real rash assault that was taking place was that which was caused by industrialization and urbanization. And this cartoon by Cruikshank in 1829 sums up the horror that was felt about the pace and scale of change that was taking place in the early 19th century. If you can see the bricks being poured out of the kiln and landing on the countryside, the hayricks fleeing for their lives, the automatons marching out into the countryside and the tenements decaying almost as they were built. And indeed they were decaying as they were built. This is the reality for many people who lived in abject poverty in squalor, with no water supplies, no decent food, the housing in terrible conditions, and of course the cholera and the disease that spread so rapidly. The factories, the mills, the pouring of pollution into the air led to enormous concerns, um, including inquiries into the state of public health. But very little was done about it. But, but on it went, in Sheffield alone, between 1831 and 1836, 156 new streets were built. This was an incredible pace of change. And there was public outrage about these conditions. And out of the cacophony of voices came one man who perhaps did more for the campaign for beauty than anyone else. John Ruskin. He was an extraordinary child. His mother read the Bible to him successively many times as a child, and he was completely sort of enraptured by the words of the Bible. But he also, as a child, had a cyanometer to measure the blue of the sky because he feared the sky would no longer ever be blue. He traveled, uh, particularly in this country. He fell in love with the Lake District at an early age, also with the Alps where he had perhaps what might be called an epiphanal moment, where he wrote, as he sat watching in the Chamonix Valley, a storm break, and he wrote, what did I see but a celestial city with walls of amethyst and gates of gold, which turn the human spirit from gazing upon itself to fix the spirit on its food for eternity. This and only this, he wrote, is in the pure and right sense of the word beautiful. So he too was describing a, a physical beauty, but also a kind of moral beauty, a sense not of selfishness, but of generosity to the future. As a slave professor of art in Oxford, he held up a, a painting by his absolutely you know, passionately adored painter, um, uh, this, this is the, the great, fa the famous painter um, Turner of Leicester Abbey, and he scrawled across it. Fortunately, it was glazed, but he scrawled across it the iron girders of a, of a railway, uh, factories churning pollution into the sky, and again, pollution damaging the, the, the water. And he, in the audience, he inspired a young man called A. E. Hausman, who was to go on to become one of our most famous poets. 
with his passionate belief that we didn't just need the products of industrialization in this country, we also needed beauty. He became a great public speaker and would fill halls throughout the country. And in honor of him, many of the city fathers built great buildings in the style, the revival, Gothic revival, that he, he was championing, the, the medieval Gothic. And this is Manchester Town Hall. He hated some of these buildings, actually, but they nevertheless were built to venerate the beauty that Ruskin was inspiring. But he also inspired many people, including William Morris and the arts and crafts movement, but above all, this young woman who became my heroine early in my life. Now she was, when she first met Ruskin, was teaching in a ragged school in London and she used to take the children out on a Sunday into the countryside. She used to walk them out simply so they could feel green grass under their feet and smell fresh air and see flowers and experience beauty because they had none in their lives. She was um, encouraged by Ruskin to, to go and work for him, um, copying paintings for his books. But actually, her real passion was for, to improve the condition of housing in London. And with his help, she bought her first few houses, became a landlord, was passionate at providing beauty for the residents. So not just clean, you know, wholesome places to live, but a, a garden, or if they couldn't have a garden, a window box, somewhere for children to play. And she said, the need of quiet, the need of air and the need of exercise, the sight of sky and of things growing seem human needs common to all. And her great works uh, spun off into campaigning to protect the green spaces in London, uh, working with the Commons Preservation Society, places like Parliament Hill Fields, Vauxhall Park, which would certainly have been built over had it not been for their campaigns. And with um, Robert Hunter and with Canon Rawnsley, who was again one of Ruskin's pupils, this famous trio, Rawnsley on the left, Hunter on the right, and an older Octavia in the middle, set up the National Trust, an organisation which is passionately committed to beauty. In fact, one of the perhaps most successful organizations, charities in the world, campaigning for beauty. But I think what's interesting about these people is they weren't just interested in preserving the past. Their vision of beauty was about how it would shape the future. And one of the legacies for which they're less well known is the design of the very first planning legislation in this country to try and address those urban evils that had been so much a concern um, decades earlier. In fact, the very first planning bill of 1909 had as its purposes to secure the home healthy, the house beautiful, the town pleasant, the city dignified, and the suburbs salubrious, this idea that beauty should be embedded in all of the places in which people lived, was very much owed its idea to this trio. But the ambitions, those early ambitions to shape public policy, to build beauty in, were shattered by the First World War, which, as we know, came with enormous suddenness and dominated Europe and, and this country um, for the years with, with which it, it, it flowed through. And the government was deeply distracted by the war and by all of the pressures on it. But you know, people were not distracted from beauty. And there are tragic stories of young men going to their deaths in the, in the trenches, clutching copies of A.E. Hausman's A Shropshire Lad, fighting for the beauty of England. 
And if you think about those wartime poets who wrote terribly and emotionally about the awful conditions of war, but they also wrote lyrically and passionately about the England for whom the troops were fight fighting. And one, Edward Thomas, who agonized about whether to sign up, wrote in this very poignant way. He said, it seems foolish to have loved England up to now without knowing it could perhaps be ravaged, and I could and perhaps would do nothing to prevent it. And so he did sign up and met his death in love of England and in love of the beauty of England. Do you remember he picked up the soil and said, this is what I'm fighting for? Now, the government, you know, conscious of the enormous sacrifice that was being made, promised those returning from the war a land fit for heroes, homes fit for heroes. But it wasn't long before all their promises evaporated. And the story really was a story of cynicism and regret that actually none of that came to fruition. There was no money to build the houses that people deserved. There was no money to sustain the economy. And you know what happens when there's a vacuum is somebody walks in to fill it. And these were the people who walked in to fill the vacuum, the speculative developers. There was no planning control over rural development. The, the urban ambitions had ground to a halt. And into the vacuum came people who wanted to make a fast buck out of building ugly houses and building them everywhere, particularly along all the main roads and particularly around the bigger cities. And so the phenomenon which became known as ribbon development and urban sprawl happened again very quickly and again shocked people by the impact it had on the countryside people loved. In fact, J.B. Priestley wrote in the very early 30s, he said, you know, the 20th century despoiling of our countryside is far worse than that of the 19th century industrialization. That only applied to a few districts. This is set to ruin our whole island. And so there was a new campaign for beauty, a new fight for beauty was born, um, led by architects like Clough Williams Ellis, who published this polemic book, England and the Octopus, where you can see the tentacles of growth uh, strangling beautiful rural England. Patrick Abercrombie, the, one of the first planners who campaigned successfully uh, to protect uh, rural England through planning and um, set up the Council for the Preservation of Rural England. And people like G.M. Trevelyan, the Regis Professor of History here, who wrote a pamphlet entitled, Must England's Beauty Perish? I mean, those were the days of the rhetorical question. I mean, incredibly passionate words, but words which reflected the, the zeitgeist of the times, because the government did agree and did take it seriously and promised to introduce planning legislation now to be intended to be comprehensive covering both town and country. But you know, once again, a war intervened and took away all the energy and the focus on protection of beauty. But again, it was pretty clear what people were fighting for. This is one of several wartime posters produced to rally the troops and indeed produced to encourage people to enlist. And again, look at this. What is the imagery used? But the beauty of an England that was in fact already struggling with the pressures of suburbanization and development, but unashamedly, your Britain, fight for it now, was the rallying call for the troops. But this time, the government was determined not to make the same mistakes as had been made after the First World War. Never again would people return to a decimated economy and to broken promises. And so even as the war begun, 
the leader of the wartime coalition, Winston Churchill, was putting together the wartime reconstruction committee determined to build the peace as the war progressed. He put John Rees, who lately left the BBC in charge of the Ministry of Works, and the Ministry of Works was at the heart of the thinking about post-war reconstruction, which I think in itself is interesting. It was because land was seen as absolutely core to the vision that they had beyond the war. In fact, in 1944, they published a white paper on land, which I've never seen before or since anything so clear talks about the right uses of land and the wrong uses of land. The wrong uses of land are all this uh, suburbanization, sprawl, wasteful uses of land that are bad for public health, bad for the economy, bad for beauty. The right uses of land was an ambition to meet all our legitimate needs for housing, for jobs, for education, for all of the public purposes, roads and, and infrastructure, but also to meet our needs for farming, to meet our needs for national parks, to meet our needs for beauty and for public recreation. And that really affected the, the atmosphere and the culture of the Post-War Reconstruction Committee. They also commissioned, obviously, from Beveridge, work on um, social um, support systems, work on the health service, work on the future of farming, work on the future of industrial policy. But of course, when it came to it, the 1945 election was not won by Churchill, but by Attlee. And I always put this picture up because I want you to count the women in this cabinet in 1945, just to remind us we have progressed a bit. There is one there, I promise you, but not as many as there should have been. But Attlee, of course, inherited all that work and brought with it his own passion. And he too, like many of those early Labour politicians, was a passionate advocate of Ruskin. And had all, they'd all read Ruskin um, in their um, early years. But the thing that they were passionate to provide was a rounded agenda to meet people's material needs, yes, of course, but also to meet what can only be described as people's spiritual needs. So alongside measures to support the economy, jobs, housing, the first universal right to education, the first national health service, the first social security systems, there were also measures to establish national parks. And this is Kinder Scout in the Peak District, the very first national park to be designated to provide public access to the countryside. Here's Tom Stevenson of the Ramblers Association leading a party of cabinet members up the Pennine Way. I'd like to see cabinet members on the Pennine Way today. So passionately did they believe that this was important. And also to protect nature. This is the large blue butterfly which was going extinct at the time. And similarly, finally, proper planning legislation for town and country, among which, of course, was the introduction of green belts, those critical rings around our towns and cities to differentiate between town and country, to stop the damage of sprawl, and also to provide green lungs for people. And importantly, to provide housing. This wasn't just an empty gesture. Masses of housing were built. But I mean, in a way that Octavia would surely have approved of. They were built houses with gardens, with trees, designed to bring beauty into people's lives. This is Stevenage in the 1950s. But it's really clear how much of a a vision that they had, that all of these elements were connected. This is John Silkin speaking as the 1949 
um, National Parks Bill was introduced to Parliament. He said, the enjoyment of our leisure in the open air and the ability to leave our towns and walk on the moors and in the dales without fear of interruption are just as much a part of positive health and well-being as the building of hospitals or insurance against sickness. So these are all a kind of a really rounded vision to support the harmonised um, necessary meeting of all our needs, the integration of public policy, and that sense of balance between material and non-material needs. This is an extraordinary vision, and one, frankly, that we haven't seen its like since. But once again, the path to good intentions was um, challenged by the kinds of pressures that probably you know, we are all aware of that took over in the second half of the 20th century. And the fight for beauty had once again to be revived. And this time, it was my fight too, because from the 1980s onwards, I was involved in the conservation organizations, becoming a fighter for beauty myself. And I just want to give you a flavor of the fights which really preoccupied us all towards the end of the 20th century. I mean, perhaps an obvious one was farming, because back in the 1940s, when all the post-war policies were designed, farming was this absolutely sort of charming, wonderful, actually rather um, vulnerable in terms of it. It was in an economically poor state, but nobody ever, ever saw that farming would conflict with beauty and the beauty of the countryside. But of course, as soon as the government began to pump money into the um, production of more food, which it did in an intense way after the war, and further intensified by the joining of the common agricultural policy in the 1970s, we, we, we had this kind of change. Now, this is hedgerows ripped out, huge landscape change as a result of commercial farming. The figures are pretty horrifying. 27% um, of the heather moorland of the entire country was lost between 1947 and 1980. And this is Exmoor, where the great fights went on in the 1980s, in which I was centrally involved. 97% of hay meadows were destroyed between 1945 and 1984 due to the intensification of production, plowing out of old meadows, and the application of, of lime and fertilizer. And indeed, a fifth of hedgerows alone were lost in the decade of the 1980s. So this kind of dramatic change was taking over our countryside. And yet, we can get it right. We can farm in ways that are good for the environment, that are good for uh, beauty, but are also good for production of food. And indeed, we must do so if we're to sustain the sustainability of our soils, which we've damaged through the heavy application of fertilizers and pesticides over many years. And as we enter this kind of new Brexit world, where we've got this enormous tension between those who want farming to be environmentally responsible and enormous pressures from those who say, no, now's the time to ramp up production again. We must improve food security. We must defend ourselves against you know, pressures of the world and produce more food from our own resources. We're going to be back to another huge fight for beauty. But we can. There is a middle way. We can do it. There were more fights about forestry, and this, these go back to the 1920s when the Forestry Commission was set up to improve homegrown timber, but where did they go for their first scalps? They went to the Lake District, that place of enormous symbolism, and this was the kind of afforestation that was taking place in the 1920s to everyone's horror. In fact, there was a, an absolutely enormous fight, and CPRE, then a very young organization, 
managed to sign a deal with the Forestry Commission that the central lakes would not be planted. This was in 1936. That didn't stop them going elsewhere. And in fact, one of my first campaigns in 1980 when I joined the Campaign for National Parks was to fight against this kind of conifer afforestation in the middle of the Brecon Beacons National Park. You know, no sort of semblance of interest in, in, in whether it fit in the landscape or beauty or, or anything else. And those fights were still going on right through the 1980s, and I describe them in my book. Also fights about the protection of our deciduous forest, much of which was um, the Forestry Commission was giving grants to fell deciduous forests and plant conifers and huge local campaigns against the destruction of our beautiful native woodland. But of course, the biggest fight of all, some of you may remember, was in 2010 when this is the new forest. The government decided in its wisdom it was going to sell off all the public forests. Now, we'd all expected there to be some pressure to, to sell the commercial forests, but never the, the new forest, the Forest of Dean, these ancient places of extraordinarily important sort of culturally, environmentally, socially, and in every other way. And it was an most enormous fight about that. And I'll never remember the moment when Ed Miliband, as Labour uh, leader, said, stood up in the Commons one day and said to the Prime Minister, does the Prime Minister support his government's policy to sell off the forests? And to everyone's amazement, David Cameron said, no, and sat down again. And that was that. There was the biggest U-turn I think I've ever seen in my life. But again, there had to be a fight about it. Without that fight, without that public concern, uh, it would have certainly happened. But again, there are solutions. I was uh, put on the forest panel after that great debacle, and we came up with some brilliant recommendations to ensure that forestry could be good for people, good for the environment, good for the economy. But you know, its recommendations have not been implemented. There were other fights, uh, more successful ones this time, you'll be pleased to hear, about the coast. Back in the 1920s and 30s, there's the ribbon development uh, pressure was resulting in huge caravan sites among the coast, lots and lots of uncontrolled developments. And again, CPRE in the very early 30s stepped in and drew attention to the concern that many people felt about this. And then later, one of the National Trust's most famous campaigns ever was that of Enterprise Neptune, which I'm sure you've heard of, which has saved more than 200 miles of our coastline. And in fact, if you go to the Mediterranean today and you see what a degraded state their coast is, I think we can be very proud that Campaigners for Beauty have given us an extraordinarily beautiful coastline which now um, can offer an extraordinary benefits in so many ways, health and well-being, of course, beauty, nature, but also um, very good for local economies and tourism. If you think of the Wales Coast Path, which has now been put in, which is creating new jobs and new businesses to great success. But the fights continue. This is, this, this is about roads. And again, the government's kind of predict and provide policy of the 1980s, which I was battling against for many years, where you, know, you forecast that there is more traffic um, going to grow on the roads. So you build roads to meet more traffic. More traffic then miraculously appears until you get into a, a cycle of just continuous expansion. And the 1980s were a terrible time for fights. This is one of the most famous, this is um, the, the, the putting of the uh, M3 extension through St. Catherine's Hill near Winchester. Do you remember Swampy camping in the uh, trees uh, here and on the Newbury Bypass? And in the end, 
there was, again, a great sort of debacle, and the government did back down, but cynics might say that uh, they backed down because they couldn't afford the expensive road programme. It wasn't just the arguments for beauty that had convinced them, because once again, infrastructure, as I'm sure it won't have escaped you today with Heathrow and others, is, is back on the agenda. And I do sometimes wonder that if we did take beauty seriously, would a project like HS2 be better received by the public? Because it's never at any point been anything other than a line on a map which the government is determined to build. It's not been approached as to how can we build the most beautiful railway to meet our needs, but also to satisfy that human need for beauty. But even where we got good policies, we can still get it wrong. And many of us, I'm sure, remember the kind of wholesale urban renewal that went on in the 50s and 60s, where historic town centres were knocked down and replaced with what can not be described as beautiful development. But I think it's actually vital that we defend the planning system because of all the campaigns that I've ever been involved with in all my time working for conservation groups. It's been the threat to planning that's been the most serious. Governments which have repeatedly said planning gets in the way of progress, it's a, it's a halt on development, it's a nuisance, it's a nightmare, it slows things up. And I can count so many times where we've had to ca campaign to protect land use planning, to protect the green belt, to protect a mechanism which was never about stopping things. It was always about how to find, if you remember that post-war period, how to find places for housing, for development, where the new roads should go, but also to deliver beauty and a good quality of life for people. And in fact, my last year at the National Trust, there was an almighty row about planning. Some of you may remember the government published a new national planning guidance framework, which had in it the line which said, the default answer to a development proposal should be yes. Absolutely staggering, because that was never the case you know, in planning. It was always about how best to achieve public needs and public benefits. There should never have been a question of a default answer. And again, there was a public outcry. We had petitions at every property in the National Trust. We'd never done it before. But people were stopping me in the street saying, thank goodness you're fighting the government. Thank goodness someone is speaking up for the protection of our countryside. Now, amazingly, and this is us, um, my team, as it were, then delivering the petition to, to Parliament, the government did pull back from some of the worst excesses. That line, the default answer should be yes, did go. But any of you who are involved in local planning battles know that that NPPF is still you know, argued over as to what is the right direction for planning. And there is still so much criticism of planning as something which just stops progress and stops growth. Well, whereas actually, if you think back since the 1940s, we've lived through depressions, we've lived through times of growth. The planning system has always been there. Planning doesn't cause these changes. Planning is the means by which we make good decisions to resolve genuine tensions. And again, you know, we can get it right. We can build beautifully. This is new rural housing near where I live in Gloucestershire. This is Brooklands Avenue development in Cambridge. Some of you will know, won all prizes for sustainability, for design, and for livability with lots of green space. And, of course, the design and redesign of our cities, this is Newcastle City Centre, is absolutely critical. Most of us will be living in cities in the next you know, 20, 50 years. We have to be able to live in ways that not only meet our day-to-day -day needs for jobs and housing, but also 
uh, are sustainable, more sustainable than currently. So we need to work out transport solutions and, and, and sensible ways of managing those pressures. But above all, we need to live in beautiful places. We deserve to live in beautiful places. So all of these fights have really dominated my life in the past 30 or more years. But what I think is really kind of important to conclude from all this is that the fight for beauty is not just about mechanisms and policies and lobbying the government and trying to sort of get the government to do something. Do you know what? It's really about us and what we value. Because when you ask politicians why they don't talk about beauty and why they only talk about the economy, they say, because that's what people care about. They tell us, when we ask them, they all say it's the economy that matters. You know, it's shopping, it's GDP. All of these things are what really matter to people as well as to us. But you know what? It's bonkers to rely on GDP. It's probably the worst possible measure that we could use. It only tracks income and expenditure. There's no balance sheet when it comes to GDP. And any of us who know anything about basic accounting or even how we live our lives, we know that it's the balance sheet that matters, whether fundamentally we've all got the resources we need to sustain us. And of course, in a world huge, where huge pressures are arising because of sustainability, not to be looking after the balance sheet, our soils, our natural resources, the state of nature is you know, really unwise. And in fact, GDP is worse than that. It sort of flatters us into thinking things are going well, while underneath it all, we're destroying the balance sheet, the basic resources on which de we depend. And you know, if we're honest, we have become a bit captivated by material things and by the sort of here and now. Remember Octavia and those ragged children and taking them out to feel and to have contact with nature because they weren't having it in their daily lives? Well. You know, children today, one could argue, do not have the access to nature that perhaps we assume they do. A child today spends between six and seven hours a day looking at some electronic gadget or other. The area over which we've let our children roam free to just discover and explore has shrunk by 90% in a single generation. We just don't let our children out of our sight. And a child today is three times more likely to be admitted to hospital for falling out of bed than falling out of a tree. Now, I am not advocating children falling out of trees, don't get me wrong, but I am saying that this is a challenge for us, that the lack of contact that many children have with nature. And it's why one of the loveliest campaigns I ran at the National Trust was this one, which I hope you've heard of, this 50 things to do before you're 11 and three quarters. It didn't actually matter what the 50 things were. They were everything from just getting muddy knees and you know, catching butterflies or, or whatever. It was just this idea that children needed a bit of free-range life. In fact, there's another statistic, which is to say many children today have less freedom than a free-range chicken. Can you believe it? So there is a whole sense in which we must give our children access to nature for their own well-being, to learn about risk, to learn about how their own lives um, can be shaped by and, and need to respond to nature. And David Attenborough once said, People will only protect what they care about, and they'll only care about what they've experienced. So if our children are not getting access to nature, they're not having these experiences, you know, what will their adult lives be like? What will they feel in terms of that relationship with nature later on in life? And so I think we've become sort of preoccupied by a word that I found 
when I was thinking about this book, and I, I hate the word, but I kind of deliberately latched onto it because it sort of expresses everything I feel. It's the word economism. And I, I dislike it because it's kind of exactly that, that thing that I hate, but it, it describes it beautiful, beautifully. And an American economist wrote back in the 1940s, he wrote, Economism can build a society which is rich, prosperous, powerful, even one which has a reasonably wide diffusion of material well-being. It cannot build one which is lovely, one which has savour and depth and which exercises the irresistible power of attraction that loveliness wields. I think those are very wise words. We do need material things. We do need houses. We do need jobs. We do need you know, good, good, thriving societies, but we also need beauty. And I think as time goes on and our lives become more and more pressurized and more and more complex, actually it is those simple things in life, the things that money can't buy, but which make us happy, that we realize more and more are an essential part of our lives. They're not something, a luxury to have when everything else is sorted out. It is profoundly important. And as we face a really uncertain future where we're using the planet's resources as if we had three, not one, where we're facing climate change with a, a real sense of not knowing how to deal with it, the economy won't save the planet and it won't make us happy. But beauty can help us find better answers, can help us reshape what really matters to us and what we're prepared to do to think about a future that may not be as rich in material terms, but will be rich in our sense of you know, collective endeavor and of living together responsibly and of sharing the things that really make us happy. We are, we are a society that perhaps, unlike Ruskin, is not as driven by religious motives as they were in the 19th century, but we're not lacking in spirituality. And I think that sense of value and purpose is really important to all of us. So I'm on a mission to revive the fight for beauty, and I'd love you to join me. Thank you. So we've got a mic if anyone's got any questions or challenges or whatever, whatever. Yes, one here. Thank you so much. That was absolutely splendid. And I feel deeply inspired and deeply moved as well by the things that you Thank said. Thank you. And I'm so grateful. Actually, can you, I, I think the mic isn't quite picking you up. I loved what you said, by the way. <laughs> the last bit I'll say again. I'm so grateful for all the things that you have done. Thank in the you. Last few years. And as somebody who's campaigned locally for similar kinds of things, I know how much work it is. My question is parks and recreation grounds are currently under the most phenomenal threat from yeah. the government. And they owe their history as well, I understand, to a similar kind of movement back in the late 19th century, I think. Earlier, earlier, yes. Do you want to, could I ask you to say something about? parks and their place, because for many people they are the 
the thing that, that they can actually reach on a daily basis? You're, you're absolutely right. I hope you heard the question. It's about parks, particularly urban parks, and the threat that they're under. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I curtailed so much of what I could have said, but the early parks, urban parks movement played a critical role. In fact, you know, the Octavia Hill green urban spaces was, was very closely linked to the parks movement. And, you know, those many of those big Victorian parks are still important today. In fact, arguably more important because for many people they are the only access to you know, green space and, and, and to any kind of fresh air. But, um, I, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is even though, you know, that 1945 government had it about the link between health, we all forgot it, but we're finding it again. And there's increasing work being done now on the benefits to people's health and, and mental well-being, particularly, of having access to green space. And so if a park is under threat now, you know, there are arguments that we can apply to say to show how important they are and to show how important people's access to them is. But I don't disagree that the pressure on our parks is huge and we have to it's one of many things that they will only be safeguarded if, if people fight for them. One there. Yeah, in the middle and then and then further forward, thanks. Do speak as clearly as you can, because we we're picking up the questions. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. It was really fascinating. Um, we're working with a group of young people in Peterborough at the moment. And I, th I suppose what I'd like to say is that um, I'm always pleased when young people are so enthusiastic. And, and I think a lot of what you said uh, resonates with them, though they live in quite an urban area. Mm. So these young people are quite creative young people, which is a good thing. But it's fascinating, I think, that you're right, we need to try to ensure that young people get this message um, while they're enthusiastic. And interestingly, two of the young people I'm working with both are interested in architecture and being architects. So it, it's, I think, hopefully, we'll, we hope we're going to hear this recorded tomorrow with these young people. So I'm hoping they'll hear this afterwards. Great. But it's, it's a comment, really, that, that um, I suppose a hopeful comment that the young people I'm working with are positive, and I think they do appreciate beauty. And it's a way of trying to support that we should try and find. I completely agree. And, you know, sometimes I've, I've given this sort of talk and people said, oh, you know, young people, it's all doom and gloom. And I completely disagree with that. I have every faith in young people. And you wouldn't be surprised to hear me say that, surrounded as I am in college by wonderful young people. But I say it for more than that reason, because there was some very interesting research done by CABE, the Commission for Architecture on the Built Environment, looking very much at young people from a mix of socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds, very much not the sort of middle classes, and saying, what does this mean to you? And they were incredibly lyrical and articulate about why beauty mattered. And I think that, you know, we underestimate young people at our peril anyway, but you're absolutely right that they are, you know, what will give us optimism for the future. And I find young people, you know, really thinking about values, really thinking about morals, really questioning, you know, us, our generation, in ways that is very, very healthy. So I, I completely agree. But I, I, worry, I worry about the children that don't have access to nature. I really worry about that. But I, I don't worry about young people's healthy passion for what, you know, what state of you, Mum, mind state of we left the planet in, you know. We've got to do something about it. There was one just here, yeah. Uh, thank you. I think it's really important work, so thank you. 
Thank you. Um, and uh, I was pleased to see you mention Rhodes at one point briefly in, uh, in your kind of history. To what extent do you think that the emphasis on continued growth in road building, urban and rural, is making to beauty? Should there be a new fight? <coughs> Should there be a, a new fight mm -hmm. against uh, continued emphasis on basically the car culture, um, which of course okay gives people access perhaps to countryside in one form, but the damage it causes in towns and in terms of air quality for children and the amount of time that children spend in cars. Uh, rather than outside. Mm. Um, yeah, so what do you think there's a, uh, some scope for a new fight against the emphasis on building road infrastructure? I think you're absolutely right to, to highlight cars and, and particularly cars in towns and cities. I mean, that's where the air pollution problems, and I think it's all been a real wake-up call. We thought we fixed air pollution back in the 80s, but we haven't. And there are real, real problems, particularly you know, in, in places where large numbers of people live next to main roads. And, you know, there have been attempts before Colin Buchanan tried in the 1960s to get traffic out of towns, completely failed. In fact, we built great roads, didn't we? If you think of, you know, many of the um, kind of urban centres and how the road completely dominates. I think that's the big challenge. And, and if we can get out of our cars in urban areas, I think Cambridge is going to have to face some really big challenges here as well. Um, clearly, you know, and, and let's be realistic, you know, a car has its value in people's lives and we can't completely rid ourselves. But I think if we can substitute really good, effective green public transport that scooped up large amounts of the urban traffic, we would be better off. We would be um, certainly spiritually and, and, and health wise. But I think we'd also have a much more sustainable future because growth of car traffic is one of the big problems. Now, everyone's saying, well, electric cars will substitute. That's great for the car journeys that we still need to make. But we've got to sort out our urban centres. I think you're, you're dead right. Yeah. Now, there's, there's one over here and then one over there. Oh, well, there's two over here. So let's pick you up as well. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you for your uh, talk, very inspiring indeed. My name is Louis, uh, I work at the, uh, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Uh, I'm a, uh, very good, officer. yes. So at the end of the day we also fight for uh, beauty, the, uh, the beauty of nature. Uh, my question is a, uh, a question uh, of, well, uh, of a, a young advocate to a, a more experienced advocate. I do face-to-face -face advocacy, and uh, all too often, I think, uh, we uh, use arguments of economic or financial value, yep. because obviously it's the, the, easier, the easiest thing uh, sorry, to do. Um, and so my, my question is, uh, have you ever uh, engaged with uh, politicians uh, on, uh, with arguments of beauty and how do you do that? Because it's very difficult to explain what the beauty of, of something is and to convince someone that this is valuable. Thank well, you. thank you for that. And the RSPB, I've worked with them very closely all my working life. It's a brilliant organization. Um, but you're right, we all, and, and I've done it myself, fall into the trap of this sort of instrumental arguments. You know, if you pass this policy, it'll be good for the economy, or conservation is good for the economy. You know, uh, heritage protection is good for the economy. I've done it many times. But I think what that leaves out, and the RSPB has been brilliant at this, is it, it, it doesn't tell us the bigger story. And the bigger story, as you know, and, and my book chart, 
arts is, you know, a, a declining state of nature in this country. So sort of pinning small bits of progress, you know, on, on economic grounds is not enough to restore nature's health, which, as we know, is absolutely critical. So I, I have all my life campaigned for beauty, actually. So one, if you work for an organization like CPRE or National Parks, I'm not embarrassed to talk about beauty. But I, I have sometimes found politicians just saying, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't wash in a kind of formal way. But when you get them out of the room and have a drink with them in the bar, they all go, you know, I agree with you, but beauty is just a too soft a word. So that's why I'm campaigning, just to revive the word for beauty, because I think if everybody talked about it, they'd have to listen. So that's my, that's my strategy. Not to, not to deny those other arguments, but just to supplement it with a completely unashamed, qualitative pitch that we need the things that money can't buy and will never buy. So, there's a lady here, yeah. Thank you very much for your work. Um, I just came here from the States to firm my master's, and so I actually had the privilege of visiting the Peak District last weekend. It really, truly is a beautiful place. But yeah. um, as I was hiking around, I was struck by, forgive me if this is an overly specific question, there was a family with a young boy out flying their drone. And I'm wondering, I feel like this is going to be an emerging debate that already is in the States. Does your idea of beauty, is that going to involve the airspace and noise as well? And sort of preserving wilderness also in terms of noise pollution. Is that you know a, a debate that's emerging within um, the United Kingdom at large? Or I feel like it will be at some point. It struck me as very strange that it seems like this generation is, their idea of connecting with the natural world is now centered upon some sort of mechanized flying device, mm. rather than actually engaging with the natural world right in front of them. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think the drone is sort of the latest in, you know, the big fights I was involved with in the 80s were about speedboats on Windermere or, you know, other very noisy pursuits, which, um, you know, we used to get called killjoys and all the rest of it. But actually, we all said there are other places where you can have speedboats. You don't need speedboats on every, um, every national park lake. So drones hasn't been a particularly big issue, but I'm sure you're right. Uh, it's coming up. And if you think about Heathrow today, actually, noise air pollution are going to be the things that really, really cut. And, and, and I, I think this is where the sort of qualitative meets the quantitative, because people are saying, oh, you know, if it's at this level of decibels, it's fine. If it's at that, it's not fine. Well, it's not how people think, is it? You know, you're either disturbed by noise or you're not. And I think there's going to be some really big arguments about, you know, how to meet people's legitimate concerns about, about noise. When I was at CPRE, we, we did an amazing... Um, initiative, which now lots of people have taken up, we, we published tranquility maps. And we published the places in the country where, and we had, it was like a sort of, um, you know, a, a map, like contours, showing the places where you could get away from noise. And it was hugely, hugely successful, and, and lots of people have picked it up since. But it just, you know, you had to go to the middle of the Peak District to get to, get to tranquil, or you had to go to Northumberland, it was fantastically tranquil. We did it with dark skies as well in the days before we all talked about dark skies. So we were, we were always pushing the boat out on these rather kind of esoteric at one level but incredibly important attributes of, of a civilised life, which is to be able to have places which are quiet and beautiful and undisturbed. So Now, there was somebody over there. Oh, there's people at the back as well. Right, yes, the, the, the lady there, and then there's a couple at the back. I think we've got a few. We've got five more minutes, so we're all right. 
Um, my point might lead on from the gentleman's over there, but um, you keep saying that you had to fight to change this decision or this government's initiative, blah, blah, blah. But is there a way you perceive that we can, you can stop having to constantly campaign and actually um, develop in correspondence with the um, legislation or anything like that? Do you think that is a possibility or do you, are you just going to have to constantly campaign against the two ideas? Well, I would love it not to be necessary to have fights about these things. And in fact, you know, what I suppose I was trying to show is that there was a time when the government thought it was important to have beauty. You know, the national parks legislation, the, um, you know, the planning, strong planning controls, etc. Um, and in fact, I mean, there's an, a new think tank called ResPublica that some of you may have heard of that is you know, quite independently been promoting beauty. And I've been encouraging them like mad, but they're, they're now trying to get beauty into the planning legislation. At the moment, there's a bill going through. And I, I just think that, you know, if we could get those sort of anchors there, legitimizing beauty as an objective of planning, um, I think it would help. I, I can't believe we'll never have to campaign again. I can't believe that happy day will come. But I do believe that actually this is something that people care about. And it's mad that it has no place and has no recognized authority in public policy. And so what I'm really hoping that is just by talking more about beauty and sort of seeking it in a much more overt and confident way, it will start to become more part of the language and more recognized. Yeah. Now, there are a couple at the back here. So you're running around like mad, but thank you. <laughs> Right, good. Microphone technique. Hold it close to your mouth. Um, yes, <clears throat> it seems to me there's one topic with regards to the uh, subject of beauty that has not been at all addressed. Yeah. Um, I say this as somebody who spends a, quite a lot of their time, um, officially and unofficially, if you will, making art of various media. And I have a fairly comprehensive knowledge of uh, 20th century art in various media. The message that comes across loud and clear with the narrative of 20th century art in all its wonderful forms, our notions of beauty change over time. Mm. I defy anybody in this room to tell me that Mondrian's Broadway Boogie Boogie is not a beautiful thing. And I defy anybody in this room to tell me Craftworks, Neon Lights, is not a beautiful piece of music. So what I would say to this audience is do not lose sight of this. Uh, do not hold one idea of beauty in your mind because there are many notions of it. Uh, and, you know, there's a danger that if you just aspire to one notion of it, you, you can arrest the development of our culture in the pursuit of that. So we have to be careful to be broad-minded in our pursuit of beauty. I agree with you. Um, and I think that actually even as I hope I've talked and sort of drawn attention to some of the campaigns, I hope that's been evident. But I think what we can't have is no beauty and nobody talking about beauty. Um, a lot of people say, oh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, so what's your beauty isn't mine, so that negates it. Well, it doesn't negate it at all. It means that your beauty and my beauty should be there, but we need to value beauty for that to happen. And I think, you know, what I'm feeling at the lack of, and, and HS2 is a good current example, is that, 
you know, nobody had the brief to try and make this a beautiful railway, even if we had different views. Now, of course, Ruskin hated the railway. Wordsworth hated the railway. Now we have preservation societies all over the country fantastically committed to looking after these steam rails. So, so yes, public attitudes change and evolve. But my point is, is not to define beauty, but to say, actually, it's in all of our interests to, 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 to elevate beauty to being a kind of proper part of what we strive for. So I agree with you. One here, and then probably that has to be our last one, I think. Thank you. Um, of course, we have the fight for beauty right on our doorstep. And um, the great god of economism um, is often used, or always used, mm. as a reason why planning decisions are made in favour of development in areas where many of us feel are very inappropriate. I mean, we try to, we, are you also keen on trying to conserve what is beautiful about Cambridge, um, try to make the argument that you will kill the goose that laid the golden egg. That businesses um, who seek to, um, to come to and work and, and live in Cambridge um, will find it impossible to actually operate and, and undesirable from the point of view of attracting the best people to work in those businesses. And, and this applies to academia as well. Um, I just wondered if you could make any personal comments about um, how Cambridge can achieve a balance between growth, with a capital G, and ma the maintenance of the kind of beauty that you know, we see before us on that screen, really. Well, only in a generic way, because I'm not you know, engaged in all the detail that you, I'm sure, are. But I, again, I think it's the same applies. You know, I hope that nothing I've said tonight suggests that I'm against you know, progress against, you know, proper, properly planned development, against investment, and actually Cambridge is a, is a really thriving and fascinating place to, to live and work. But I do think, I, I like words like harmonisation, integration, balance, uh, recognising material and non-material benefits. And I think that it is really vital that a city like Cambridge recognises that part of its appeal is its beauty and, and is the sense of history and the fact that you can still read into the landscape, both of the urban environment and indeed of the countryside, you know, that story of change. And so, you know, I'm, anyone who has seen my book is I'm a great Hoskins fan, you know, W.G. Hoskins, who wrote The Making of the English Landscape. And for him, it was the ability to read that story and for no generation to obliterate completely you know, the traces of the past, that is the great thing to strive for. It's not to say there should, there is no future, there isn't a changing future, but to keep that thread of, of, of visible storytelling and history going. And, and that's, you know, to me, that's what the kind of opportunity is in Cambridge, to, to, to celebrate the, the, the spirit of place, if you like, that, that Cambridge has, that nowhere else has, at the same time as keeping it a very contemporary, lively um, 21st century city. I think I better stop, don't you? <laughs> Thank you so much for your lovely questions and for coming. And if anyone does want the book, we'll be just downstairs. Thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs>